0: Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
1: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So, next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now in store or online. Kroger, fresh
0: for everyone. The volume. Just a reminder that you can catch me recording this podcast live on AMP. AMP is the new live radio app that lets you call in and chat with me in person while I'm recording. Get the app on Apple's app store and make sure you follow me at Chris Mannix to get notified when I go live this is boxing with Chris Mannix somebody punch him in the face Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious Box. finisher watch this Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion hosted by SI's Chris Mannix that was my moment now with interviews analysis and everything going on in the world of boxing when you have talent you are given another chance here's Chris Mannix we are back, boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. Glad you could be here. Glad you could join. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast feed, welcome. We appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you subscribe both at YouTube and on the podcast feed. Rate and review the show as well. A lot to get into this week. We had a interesting weekend in boxing with big cards in New York and in Minnesota. Uh, we have a good weekend coming up, headlined by Jared Anderson, the heavyweight contender, returning, making his hometown debut in Toledo, Ohio. It's a fight you can watch on ESPN+. Plus. Jared's going to join me a little bit later in the show to talk about that. But to get into all the news of the week, I want to bring in a friend of the podcast, Corey Erdman, boxing writer over at BoxingScene.com, broadcaster to Zone, ESPN, a whole bunch of different places. Uh, he joins me here on the show. So, Corey... Before uh, we look ahead at some of the stuff that uh, is is going on this week and some of the news items, I want to look back at last weekend. And let's start in New York, where I was with uh, Edgar Berlanga uh, taking on Jason Quigley. And this was the first fight of Edgar Berlanga's matchroom deal. Uh, It's a multi-fight deal with matchroom. Uh, He thought it was going to lead to a Canelo Alvarez fight. That's obviously out the window right now. We'll get to that more a little bit later. But Berlanga... Taking on Quigley, I think a lot of people expected Berlanga just to roll over Jason Quigley. You know, Quigley was last seen, at least stateside, you know, getting just blown away by Demetrius Andre. I think a lot of people expected Berlanga to do something similar. Uh, He doesn't. He does get Quigley down four times in the fight. It goes to a decision. He wins wide. Uh, Give me your assessment of what you saw from Edgar Berlanga in this one.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that he was modestly better than how he looked last time out. Uh, but he did run into a, a pretty pesky opponent in Jason Quigley. You know, I, I didn't think that Quigley was necessarily winning a lot of those rounds. Whoa, but whoa, 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 so, whoa, you whoa, know, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, Sergio, you know. <laughs> sir, don't, Sergio, turn off. Sergio Mora, turn off this portion of the podcast because <laughs> I know somewhere in Southern California, Sergio Mora is still scoring rounds for Jason Quigley. Somewhere. Well, listen, and
1: in Sergio's defense, I could see what he liked in what Quigley was doing because I think Sergio was seeing a lot of the things that brought Sergio to a world exactly, title. Just the ability exactly. to, to nullify a, a lot of what Munguia was doing. Now, the argument, sorry, not Munguia, obviously Berlanga, Um, The argument is, was he doing enough of that to win rounds or not? But setting that aside, Berlanga had someone in Quigley that was making things difficult for him in each and every round. And, you know, a lot of people sort of cast Quigley aside uh, and they expected him, as you said, to do what Andrade had done. But, you know, remember, Berlanga is a guy who was, you know, taking heat for the struggles that he had with, you know, the Cocerises and Damon Nicholsons of the world. So, if you don't blast Jason Quigley out there who, you know, is a guy that fought for a world title and, in is uh, of had reached a higher level than Berlanga had as professional. To me, that can be acceptable. The the, the problem is that Berlanga is always fighting against not just his opponent, but the expectations that were set upon him with that knockout streak. And the moment that ended for him, uh, everything in comparison to that is obviously going to be less exciting. And, You know, Berlanga, I still think was missing, you know, what I would describe as some of that connective tissue in between, uh, what he wants to do, those big blistering attacks, uh, you know, the big power shots, the big athletic moves, the, the, the leaping hooks, that kind of stuff. There's a little bit missing in terms of, well, how can he set that up beyond just brute force or, or sheer athleticism? Some of that is missing, and that's what Quigley was able to exploit, and that's why he was able to make things difficult. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was I was blown away by the performance, but I also
0: wasn't, you know, totally distraught afterwards um, or, or terribly disappointed. Let me say this about my pal Sergio, uh, who knows more about boxing than I ever will, like has lived it, won a world championship. His resume speaks for itself. He does have a blind spot, and his blind spot is with guys – that move around the ring and use their jab. Because that's who Sergio was as a fighter. That's the fighter that Dean Campos raised, you know, in the gym and turned into a world champion. So when he sees a guy doing anything that resembles that, he, he, he gives it more credit than it deserves. Like, there, there at no point in time was Jason Quigley a threat, in my opinion, to win that fight. Like, he was not going to get knocked out. That, that was relatively clear, even though he got knocked down. One of those knockdowns early was not really a knockdown. He kind of tripped, and it was more of a grazing shot that that led to a trip. Uh, but he wasn't going to win that fight. Uh, and uh, Sergio just loves those types of guys that uh, <laughs> stick and move and stick and move. And But look, the copy box numbers speak for themselves. In no round did Jason Quigley outland Edgar Berlanga. Edgar Berlanga Berlang- Berlang landed like 47% of his power punches. He, he, he was landing shots. And while Quigley was certainly moving around the ring well, and you can give him credit for a measure of ring generalship. At some point you have to land more punches than the other guy. It's as simple as that. And he never did that at any point in time. Didn't or during the fight. Uh, I, I did want to,
1: I did want to point this out there, Chris. I I do want to say that, uh, you know, to categorize Quigley's performance, basically he did about as well as he could possibly have done sure. against that opponent, right? Sure. Like the threats that Berlanga presented, he did everything he could. And and I do want to give credit. I want to make sure I give credit to Andy Lee for his corner work in this fight. And I, I know it, to people who are watching on TV, it might have sounded a little bit bizarre at one point because Lee, after a round that he had been knocked down was in, 10, eight. he 10, said eight we round, won that round. <laughs> yeah, He won that round. But I understood why he was doing that. I I understood that what he was saying, his line of communication throughout the whole night was just effusive praise for his fighter. And part of that might be Andy Lee's communication style. Part of that may be that's how Quigley as a person and as an athlete is motivated. Whatever the reason, I think that Lee was doing the right thing because what he was communicating is that within your skill set and given the opponent that we have right here, you are doing the best that you possibly can. And that was what was right to be communicated at that at that point. You know, I'm not one of these people who likes to, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, there's no teachers in boxing anymore. And, you know, that can be you'll get immediate likes if you say something like that. It sounds like a kind of, you know, high minded, like appreciation of yesteryear and, you know, whatever. But there are good trainers out there. And I think that Andy Lee is one of them. And I, I, I think that. Too often, what you will see in corners is trainers asking something of their fighter that they just can't actually perform. You'll often see guys say, oh, you know, where are those six punch combinations we we saw in the gym? Well, those don't work in this fight. Andy Lee knew what his fighter had that worked, that he could actually perform. And he set out, I think, the best game plan that that Quigley could have possibly enacted. So I I do want to give a shout out to Andy Lee. I think a lot of people will kind of forget that fight. Uh, and what he did in that fight. But I think he did a really excellent job with what he had.
0: I think the game plan was fine. I I just don't... I don't know that... You can never win a fight moving that much and only throwing jabs. And and that really was what Quigley was doing. Um, The power numbers were significantly in favor of Berlanga. And even though Berlanga didn't look great and didn't land a whole bunch of them, he was still landing more than Jason Quigley. And, you know, know, those shots tend to count more in the minds of the judges. So at no point did yeah. I think that that Berlanga was in danger of losing that fight. Where, where I wonder, and what I wonder, was where was the 12th round? Where was the Edgar Berlanga of the 12th round during the first 11? Like, where was that guy? Like, you're telling me that Edgar Berlanga in the first, second, or third round could not have turned up the heat? I mean, we know he, his trainer believed he could have. Mark Defeat was in the corner saying, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go, pick it up. Throw the jab more, some feints, all the things we worked on in camp. At no point... Corey, did did Edgar Berlanga go back to his corner and hear positive reinforcement? To contrast what you just said, Jason Quigley was hearing another positive reinforcement. Edgar Berlanga mm. was hearing, you know, the boxing equivalent of your you're your blowing it. Like you, that's what he's hearing <laughs> yeah. over and over again. So I just wonder where the Edgar Berlanga was in the twelfth round. Why he didn't step on the gas earlier in this fight? Because when he did, he could be overwhelming. He was far more powerful than Jason Quigley. That right hand had an effect. I don't know where that version of Berlanga was for the first eleven rounds of the fight. That was my biggest issue with how he fought.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you know, I, and I'm just guessing here. I think that one is that Quigley was obviously more tired in the twelve, so Berlanga, you know, had a more susceptible opponent. I, I think that's one thing. Because one thing Berlanga did do well throughout the fight, and I think Sergio even agreed with that. I thought he was cutting off the ring decently, and he was applying good foot pressure all I thought night. It was long. okay. Was making, I thought it was okay. You know, I, I thought, it, I mean, I, I thought it was okay. I'd... Yeah, it, sure. You know, but but it was he, he was he was applying pressure throughout the night. I think my guess is that Berlanga, throughout this fight, and and I'm just kind of taking clues from what he said afterwards, was sort of caught between ideologies a little bit. He said that in in the opening rounds, I think he said it to you that he was supposed to start faster. Mm. He thought that he was going to start faster, but he wound up trying to negotiate range a little bit more. And I think that that may be the, the part of his brain that's still kind of with the former trainer. And now with the new trainer, where I mean, he said throughout camp, they basically put a heavy bag against the wall and had him slam it until exhaustion. You know, that kind of like killer mentality is kind of antithetical to maybe how he was thinking before. And I think he tapped into what he needed to be in that 12th and final round, and how I think
0: he now envisions himself as a fighter. So let's talk about what he does next because it's pretty obvious the big fight to make for Edgar Berlanga is Jaime Munguia. This is a fight that would be between two young, undefeated, 168-pound contenders who are both high in most of the sanctioning body rankings. It would be a perfect matchup of styles. Neither of these guys takes more than a couple of steps backward. In fact, they're probably just going to go forwards from the opening bell, and it would be a electric type of fight. It would sell a bunch of tickets, whether you have the fight in Southern California, in Las Vegas, in New York City. It probably sells out the big room in New York City, frankly. Edgar Berlanga put about 5,000-plus into the theater at the Garden with Jaime gear with his fan base, with the right promotion. That is a MSG sellout, I think. Uh, and I don't think that's too much of a stretch. I think Jaime Munguia would take the fight. I think Oscar De La Hoya would take the fight. I think Eddie Hearn would make the fight. I'm not convinced that the people around Edgar Berlanga, his management, trainers, would want that fight right now. And that's disappointing. Because one of the reasons, one of the criticisms Edgar Berlanga had when he left top rank was, you know, top rank officials privately you know, whispering that Edgar Berlanga didn't want to fight anybody. Remember, it was Jesse Hart back then. You know, they couldn't make a fight with Jesse Hart. Uh, He goes to matchroom, and he gets what was supposed to be a gimme in the first fight of his deal, Jason Quigley, who was a middleweight up until about a year ago. Uh, and, And now it sounds like, it seems like anyway, that Berlanga wants another gimme, or another fight where he is a, you know, Three to one, four to one, five to one. Favorite against. I, I don't think there's any value in that. I don't. I don't even know who that would be at one sixty eight. Like, I don't know who that would be. I don't know who he wants at one sixty eight that represents that type of credible opponent, but not credible enough to be a real threat to Berlanga. I think it's got to be Mungia, and I'd make Mungia a favorite right now. Uh, I think he's improved a lot more over the last couple of years than Berlanga has, but. I don't make him this overwhelming favorite. I think everything we've seen from Jaime Munguia, including most recently his fight against Sergey Derevyanchenko, shows a vulnerable fighter. I mean, Sergey Derevyanchenko, fifth round, Corey. Fifth round, he had Jaime Munguia on the ropes. He was hurting oh, Jaime yeah. Munguia. And Sergey yeah. Derevyanchenko is a good fighter. You know, much better than his record suggests. But he's a middleweight who was 37 years old going into that fight. You're telling me that if you're Edgar Berlanga's management... By the way, his manager, Keith Conley also represents Sergey Derevonchenko. So he was sitting there watching what was happening during Derevonchenko-Munguia. If you don't believe that your guy can win a fight against Jaime Munguia, you don't belong anywhere near any of the top guys in, in the super middleweight division. Look, I, I understood when they were talking about getting a Canelo Alvarez fight, and that was always kind of the, the plan for Edgar Berlanka. They, they said this publicly. When, when that was on the table, I could understand the push to avoid an extremely difficult opponent in that second fight. But Canelo is not an option. He's got a multi-fight deal with PBC that's probably going to keep him tied up on that side of the street through September of 2024. What's Edgar Blanca going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to take a B-level or C-level opponent in his next fight and then fight Jaime Munguia? What are we waiting for? Like, what are we waiting for? We have been clamoring for years to see Jaime Munguia in a big fight. There's nothing out there for him. You're going to tell me that Jaime Munguia and Oscar De La Hoya are going to make a fight against David Benavidez? Bullshit. Bullshit. They're going to run into that fight. Like, they would be a 8-1 to one underdog in a fight against David Benavidez. They would be a favorite against Edgar Berlanga. That's why De La Hoya and Munguia's team, Fernando Beltran, they're going to want that fight against Berlanga. Berlanga should want that fight too. That is a winnable fight for him. It's a tough fight but it's a winnable fight for him. If he wants to get all the people that are on his back uh, off, you know, on his back for not fighting the best in his division, he's got to take this fight. And to his credit, he hopped on social media on Sunday when Oscar and Eddie were doing their, uh, whatever it is that they're doing with Twitter. He subtweeted it and said, Oscar, bring me that punching bag, talking about Munguia. So Berlanga is on record saying he wants that fight. His team needs to make that fight. Do you agree? I think it's an awesome fight, and I think it should be the next
1: fight. You know, and and I understand, uh, you know, if Berlanga sees the triple G carrot out there, and maybe wants to see if that's a possibility before signing uh, for Munghia. But the better fight, the more entertaining fight for me. Is the Munguia you know, fight? I'll, and, I'll you know, grant know, you that too, I, I, Corey. I'll
0: grant you that. Like if, if, if Gennady Golovkin wakes up tomorrow and says, I'd like to fight Edgar Berlanga, make that fight. That's kind of a take the money, like, yes. that's a king-making type of fight for Berlanga. Yes. But if Golovkin is still waffling and he's into July and August being like, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. Forget it. Go make the fight against Munguia. You beat Jaime Munguia. You're a money man. In in 168-pound yeah. division. You can go to David Benavidez and say, look, it's a 50-50 split. Or you can go down the line to Canelo Alvarez and say, I've earned a bigger share of the pie. I, I Sorry to interrupt you there, but I, I just... No, I, no. I, you know, I, I think that is such a an important fight for Edgar Berlanga that he's got to find a way to take it if Golovkin's not available.
1: Well, and, uh, you know, I don't know what's been discussed behind closed doors, but I do get the sense that Berlanga, as you said, wants that fight. And I actually found his post-fight interview uh, with you on the broadcast to be really interesting and really illuminating. You know, it was a very different Edgar Berlanga than the one that we saw kind of during the buildup. Like the bombast was kind of gone and he he was sort of pensive. He was a little bit quiet. But I also found it interesting that Berlanga, Kind of even in that interaction with you, sort of let it slip that he, he kind of almost agrees with a lot of the criticism about him, but he's rationalizing it a little bit differently. You know, he said that the reason, basically, in, in effect, he's saying the reason that I'm struggling or I look like I'm having difficulty with this level of guys, you know, the Jason quickly's and below is because they're not talented enough. So they don't want to engage with me, but I will look better if I face better fighters. The problem is that my competition hasn't been good enough, and that will make me look better because they'll be trying to knock me out too, just like I will be to, uh, with them. Look, okay, and we've I seen we've, really seen, we've you know? seen
0: examples of this. I mean, yeah, you know, Teofimo I mean, Lopez looks awful against Sandor Martín. He fights against Josh Taylor. Josh Taylor engages with him. Teofimo looks great right now. Regis Progray is dealing with that same stuff. Danielito Zaria dances around the ring for twelve rounds. Progray, are there weaknesses there? You put Progray in with someone that's going to bang with him, he's going to look a heck of a lot better. So I think exactly. I understand where Berlang is coming from there.
1: Yeah, well, and and you know, so to that point, like I think that he thinks that not only does he want these fights, but I think he thinks he needs them because he feels like he's past the point of gaining anything from that level of fights. The other thing is that objectively, you know, and, and I don't know who these names are necessarily, but I think that. There's a danger for Berlanga if he faces anyone that sits between that Quigley and Mungia level. thousand percent. That he could lose, right? Couldn't agree you know? more. Like, couldn't
0: agree more. There, there is yeah.
1: a danger there. So objectively, if you're playing matchmaker with this guy, I think it's better off to just go to the fight that not only do the fans want, but he seems to want as well. I, I don't see a
0: tremendous amount of downside there. By the way, he's 26. You lose a competitive fight with Jaime Mungia. You're not taking too many steps back. I mean, Derevchenko no. just lost a fight to Jaime Mungia. They're talking about doing a rematch. In fact, I was told that you know Golden Boy and Derevchenko want the rematch. I'm not so sure Dazone uh, is interested because, understandably, Dazone wants Mungia to fight Berlanga. You don't want to put these mm-hmm. two guys in with other opponents where they will be would be sizable favorites. And with due respect to the performance Derevchenko had. I had kind of a last standish feel off that, Corey. Like, you know, that Darvinchenko dug deep one last time. I feel like if he fights Munguia again, it's not going to be as competitive this time around because he is on the older side and there's only so many wars you can go through before they really start to take their toll and you ultimately get stopped. So,
1: yeah, I, I, I sort of got the, the same feeling and, you know, all the respect to him in the world. Uh, I wouldn't want to count him out heading into that rematch, but yeah, I, I felt like Whatever he had left, whatever his body had left to give, he might have left it in the ring that night. You know, and there's lots of examples of that, you know, throughout boxing history. I'm thinking like I'm a very random example. Let's say like Mancini Bramble won, Well, Mancini Bramble two, boom, boom, just didn't have it anymore, right? Like, and uh, that may be the case with Terry Vincenco. He's he's put a lot into this sport, and
0: he he left a lot in the ring in that fight too. Yeah, he did. No question about that. I can't believe you're the second guy in three years to bring up Livingstone Bramble. Brian Kenny did it. Like years ago. And I thought he was I thought he was making the name up, honestly. I thought it was like a Dickens character that he just made up. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but apparently apparently that's a real person, which I looked up uh later on. Um also on that card we saw Adam Kabnowski uh lose his fourth straight fight. Uh you know, it was a fun fight, as almost all Adam Kubnowski fights are. Uh I think we we're done. I think Adam Kobnaski should call it a career. If he loses to Joku there's nobody on the higher level of the heavyweight division that he can stand in there. And maybe, Corey, it's a blessing in disguise. If he had found a way to go the distance with Kusamano and squeeze out a win, he was a candidate to fight Anthony Joshua in August. And that would have been that would have been ugly. It would yeah. have been ugly. That would yeah. have been ugly. That's the the problem though,
1: and, and I think that he, he should call it a career as well, you know, if I'm just sort of objectively playing doctor and matchmaker here. Um, you know, without I can't I don't have agency over his life and his career. But the, the difficulty, particularly with heavyweights, Chris, is that there is always money for a returning or an aging heavyweight sure. anywhere in the world. The, these fights cost more money to make than in any other division. And there's always money out there uh, in Europe, back home in Poland for him to, to make a return. I mean, Andrew Galata came back a, a couple of years ago. Danny Williams still gets booked for fights. Kevin Johnson is still in fights. There there will be offers for Kovnachki and they will seem appealing But uh, you you see this career arc, and I don't want it to happen um, to him, but you see this career arc a lot in the heavyweight division where you just slide further and further down the card until you kind of reach a really sad end and you're losing exhibition fights in Russia. I don't want that fight. I don't want that arc for him. But there will always be the possibility for it because the money will be there for him. And hopefully he's made enough that that kind of money isn't tempting for him to do
0: that yeah i think you know if i was a betting man i'd say he fights again i don't think he fights again in the u.s because i don't think there is a major promoter that would work with him at this point because he has been knocked out and in a couple of cases badly in three of his last four fights he had a broken orbital bone in one of those fights if you can't beat an opponent on the level of Joe Cusimano, do you really want to see Adam Kovnatsky in with some, like Jared Anderson, for example? Like, do you really want to see that? I'm going to pass. I don't need to see yeah, Kovnatsky I, taking that kind I, of behavior.
1: I'm going to pass. Well, and it's also hard, you know, not only what happened in the ring, but it's hard for a guy to bounce back after, you know, fans who watched that broadcast seeing that, you know? And, and you you guys were rightfully talking about this should be the end for him.
0: Um, how do you I, get, I get the bounce sense. Back from I'll that tell you what fight, you know? I, 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 like, get, I get the sense he wants to keep fighting. I, I've heard some whispers. I'm that, sure. that he wants to keep going. but look there were moments where he was competitive, um, you know, especially in that second and third round when he rallied after the first round knockdown. But again, look at the caliber of opponent. Joe Cusumano, all credit to him for winning that fight. That's the same guy, two fights earlier, that was knocked out in the first round by Daniel Dubois. Uh, he was ga- was gassed. After the first round, if you can't beat someone like that, you shouldn't be in with some of these heavyweight killers that are only going to be looking to fight you because of your name, because of the fact that you can sell tickets in New York City. I hope Adam Kovnowski's got the right people around him that says, look, there are other things we can do. We can train fighters. We can do a whole bunch of different things to make money instead of putting your health at risk. Get a young family. Shouldn't be fighting uh, you shouldn't be fighting anywhere uh, ever again. The other fight over this past weekend I want to ask you about was the uh, middleweight secondary title, which will eventually be the full title. Carlos Adamas, Julian J. Rock Williams. This was a fight that was highlighted by another questionable stoppage. Showtime's had some bad luck with these questionable stoppages. You had the Romero Barroso fight a few weeks earlier, stopped prematurely, and now you had Mark Nelson. Stopping the adamas J-Rock Williams fight a little bit early. I had a different vibe to this, Corey, because look, the the Barroso stoppage was abhorrent. Like that should never have happened. That was borderline criminal. Um was the Adamas Williams fight stopped too early? Yes. I, I believe it was stopped right as Williams was throwing a punch. So I, I think that's that speaks volumes uh in and of itself. But you could see where that fight was going, right? Like you could see that Adamas was landing the heavier shots, was hurting Williams, which his trainer admitted after the fight. You know, did the referee stop the fight three punches too early instead of one punch too early? Probably. But this wasn't a fight that I thought was going to end any other way than Carlos Adamas winning it. I thought it was either going to end by... Some kind of violent stoppage, or Adamus would have won even wider than he did uh, on the scorecards at the time of the stoppage.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to be fully transparent here that I've only seen the closing sequence of this fight because presently, uh, Showtime does not have a broadcast or streaming deal in Canada. Oh, so, it w- man. so when I have to watch the Showtime fights, uh, I mean, I don't know what the, the statute of limitations is here, but I have to find less than legal means or like get a copy of it after the fact. Uh, so, But I have seen the closing sequence, and I, I agree with you, Chris. It looked to me like a fight that... I mean, there's a big difference between the Barroso stoppage, which is one where you cannot put yourself in the headspace of the referee and how they arrived at that conclusion, and one like the J-Rock stoppage where you could see how the referee... Uh, has seen some things that made him want to stop it a little bit earlier and yeah maybe stopped it a punch or two too early but might have saved uh, a more violent ending i think that there's there's a big gap between those things but within that gap i think there is space to call this you know a premature stoppage and if you're on J Rock's side to have the anger that you do and, and to think that it should have uh that it should have continued, but also one where you can look at the referee and say, I, okay, I, I get how you arrived at this conclusion.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm sure in Mark Nelson's mind, he thought he was saving Julian Williams from something far worse, something that was coming, something that he could see coming, you know, give J-Rock credit. I mean, there was, I think it was the fourth round. He just took a savage beating and just rallied from it. Um, but this was going the way of Carlos Adamas and, One way or the other, he was going to win that fight. And hopefully, look, hopefully Adamas gets elevated to full middleweight title holder. He has been active, out there fighting semi-regularly, pretty regularly, I should say, uh, while Jamal Charlo has been off waiting for this exact opportunity to come around with Canelo Alvarez. I mean, let's be real, why... The the reason Jamal Charlo is still the WBC middleweight champion is because the WBC on September 16th wants to say it's the WBC middleweight champion versus the WBC super middleweight champion. That's the only reason he has not been stripped of that title. I don't want to hear about the WBC being compassionate for all that Charlo is going through. I feel for what Charlo is going through. That doesn't mean you get to hold on to that title indefinitely, especially when a guy like Adamas is out there fighting, winning significant fights. Uh, you know, I, I would wager that come September 17th <laughs> that Carlos Adamas is the full-fledged middleweight champion uh, uh, at 160 for the or for the WBC. So a good win for him, tough loss for Julian Williams. Uh, speaking of Charlo and that fight coming up against Canelo, we talked a little bit about this last week in the immediate aftermath of Canelo choosing the deal, the multi-fight deal with PBC. Canelo opting for... The Charlo fight over one with David Benavidez. And I said at the time, and I stand by it, that I'm fine with this fight for Canelo. Uh, Charlo is not what he was three years ago. Um, He has not fought in more than two years. His last fight, he looked very average against Juan Macias Montiel, but he still is undefeated. He still is officially a title holder. He still is a big mouth and a big name that will undoubtedly... I have a lot to say during the buildup to this fight. I just, all that being said, I, I can't say this being competitive. I can't. I mean, maybe Canelo isn't what he once was, but Canelo, this version of Canelo is still a lot better than this version of Charlo because we have not seen Charlo in the last couple of years when we have seen him. It hasn't looked like he's been in training the entire time. Uh, He's been dealing with a lot outside the ring. He's been dealing with injuries that have obviously impacted his career over the last couple of years. I just don't see this being a competitive fight. I don't. I think it's, you know, maybe Charlo can go the distance. He's got a good jab. Maybe use that to keep Canelo off him. He'll obviously be up for this fight because it's career-defining for him. But Jamal Charlo has not been a a high-level guy since 154. You know, he hasn't fought anybody at 160. His best win came over Sergei Derevchenko, and that was the Derevchenko that had gone 24 rounds with Daniel Jacobs and Gennady Golovkin. So, uh, I don't know. Am, am I wrong? Are you seeing this as a fight that Jamal Charlo can be... I don't want to say... Look, I, I, the word competitive can be viewed many different ways, but is this a fight Jamal Charlo can win? Let's put it that way. So, this is interesting because I, I think
1: I think I was on here maybe a year and a half ago, maybe before that. And, and even prior to that, Charlo during that time when Canelo seemed like an absolutely unbeatable monster, and there was a, there was a period of time. and It wasn't that long ago where I looked at the landscape of potential people that Canelo could feasibly fight. And I looked at all the names and I, you know, I was, I, I would say that he would have been a favorite over all of them, but the one name that always jumped out at me as, Hey, maybe this guy would give him problems. And by the way, I, w- I was wrong about, I didn't consider Dimitri Beeble. <laughs> but at the time, I always thought that Charlo was one that could give him difficulty because when I've looked at what has troubled Canelo in the past, um, you know, you know, set aside, you know, Southpaw stuff, length, a guy that can that can hold his ground the way that people did, the way that Mayweather did. Uh, you know, Laura didn't do so much of that, but guys who can be powerful and box in, in, in the pocket and not concede ground. Uh, Golovkin, obviously doing that with, with that stiff, heavy jab. Charlo has those elements in like the best version of Jamal Charlo. I thought uh, at his peak would have given Canelo a lot of problems. And as this fight gets a little bit closer, I'll probably convince myself of that once again so that I can get excited about it. But it's hard to ignore the the inactivity and the layoff, and just looking at how Charlo's life has been over the last couple of years, you know, with the struggles that he's had personally, um, you know, like seems to be partying a lot. Not to say that Canelo doesn't have a good time as well, but you know, Charlo seems to be out there a lot more, at least visibly, than we see a lot of high level fighters. And when you couple all those things in together, you start thinking, well, maybe that is the reason why Canelo is, is taking this fight. Not to you know categorize it as a cherry pick or anything, but there, there's a reason why he's pretty comfortable taking this fight. And I think that's probably it, because the best version of Charlo, the one that I'm imagining, might not be one that he can reestablish, given how the past
0: few years have gone for it. Well, if this was fight was taking place four years ago, when both these yes. guys were middleweight champions... I think it would have been competitive for all the yeah. reasons you articulated. Um, you know, Charlo has that excellent jab, which has given Canelo problems, whether it's Kanadi Golovkin, Sergey Kovalev, Dmitry Bivol threw a lot of jabs in their fight. That's a weapon that Canelo hasn't quite figured out how to navigate. Um, you know, we all remember the end of the Sergey Kovalev fight and the spectacular knockout, but up until that point it was pretty competitive. It was a one or two round type of fight. And that was because Sergei Kovalev under the stewardship of Buddy McGirt threw like a thousand jabs in that fight. Um, I thought the 2019 version of Jamal Charlo could have done that. The guy I've seen subsequently, I mean, the last example of Jamal Charlo, the last video we have of him was against Juan Macias Montiel, who is a journeyman. He's a journeyman. And Charlo could not get him out of there. I mean, that's the same guy that I think a couple of years earlier, Jaime Munguia just pancaked when they uh, they faced each other. So four years ago, yeah, would have loved to have seen this fight. Would have been a great fight. Both these guys, 160-pound title holders, but now you have Jamal Charlo, who, look, maybe he's saying it for different reasons, but I, I watched that, that Instagram Live or whatever it was that he was on with Demetrius Andrade, and Andrade's like, come up to 168, let's fight, and was like, no, nah, I never fought at 168. I'll do it at like 163, 164. So maybe he's not fully comfortable with fighting at this new weight class. And to do it for the first time against an opponent like Canelo Alvarez, who is sharp, you know, went 12 rounds with John Ryder, wasn't the best of Canelo, but he got that post-injury stuff out of the way. And now he's back at full strength. I don't know. I think Canelo's going to find a home for that right hand on the midsection, of Charlo's got that really long midsection. I think he's going to keep him on the back foot for most of the night. I think he'll eventually get to him, and I think he'll eventually stop him. Uh, Charlo's, nah. Charlo's going to have to do something special, and he's going to have to keep advancing on Canelo. Keep throwing that jab, throw it you know, a lot against Canelo to have an impact where you make Canelo think and change up his game plan and, and do something maybe a little bit reckless. But even if he does, like you know, Charlo at 154 was a big puncher. Charlo at 160 has not shown that yet. Uh and a one sixty-eight against the guy with one of the best chins in boxing. I just don't see it. I, I don't I don't see the path to victory for Jamal Charlo in a fight like this.
1: Yeah, and, and Charlo is a he's a very sharp puncher, but you're right. I think there is a question. I mean there's a question about can anyone hurt Canelo? Because you're right, he just has an absolutely granite chin. Um, you know, the, the size discussion is one that's interesting too. Excuse me, because you know, Jamal naturally in terms of where they walk around is, is bigger than Canelo, right? He's taller, he's longer, but also I remember there being like, kind of like a, a YouTube video where Jamal was talking to, to Derek James uh, and he said, oh, I, I walk around, you know, heavier than you are right now, which said to me that Jamal probably walks around around like 190-ish. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to your point about him discussing where he's comfortable weighing in at, Canelo has, has been a super middleweight now for a little while. And there's a difference between your kind of natural size, your walk around weight, and what you are athletically comfortable at. And Canelo has become very comfortable as, you know, the stocky, muscle bound 168. Um, and so yeah, I think that I would I would predict that he'll handle Charlo's power. Really that yeah, the question is, you know, is Canelo on enough of a slide and can Charlo tap into what do you think he is? Think he, do you think Canelo's on a slide? I mean, just naturally, you know, as an athlete, yeah, he probably is like declining marginally. That doesn't mean he's on a precipitous decline, right? I think when people hear that, they, they think that that's a, some nasty pejorative. But like, of course, Canelo is not peaking right now, right? He's on some sort of a decline. The question is, can Charlo, who at one and in, in, you know, within him has a very special toolbox, this is someone who would, was an elite fighter is capable of that. Can he make up for those last couple of years? Has he still been able to develop and get a little bit better? And can those arcs meet at a place, you know, the the Canelo decline and his potential ascent? If, if he's getting better, if he's been able to, can they meet at a
0: place where where Charlo can make this competitive? That's the question. You look at his fights at 160, which his career as a middleweight began at in 2017. Jorge Highland, uh, he knocked out in the fourth round. Highland. A journeyman Hugo Centeno knocked out in the second round. That was fine. That's when he won an introversion version of the middleweight title. Then he goes the distance with Matt Koroboff. I thought that fight was a lot closer than some of the scorecards indicated, especially Larry Hazard's scorecard, which was wild that night. Brandon Adams he goes the distance with Brandon, obviously a a tricky fighter um, and and a lot smaller, so difficult to to track down. Dennis Hogan he knocks out Dennis Hogan. Really a one fifty four. Uh, you know I didn't think too much. Of that goes the distance with Dervinchenko, but I thought that was the most impressive win of his run at middleweights because even though Dervinchenko probably wasn't the guy that went twelve with Golovkin, um, he 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 still had, I think, something left in the tank there. Uh, so, you know, good win. and that's the one fight that Dervinchenko or his team don't contest. like they readily admit they lost that fight. Uh, and then you go up to Montiel and, you know, he beat Montiel wide, but, you know, you know, Montiel's just not all that good. You look at what he's done, you know, previously. He gets knocked out by Carlos Adamas in his last fight. Uh, you know, previous fights against Jaime Muglia that I mentioned, second round knockout. Uh, just a, a mid-level journeyman type guy that, that Charlo, for whatever reason, couldn't get out of there. And I, I think if he's just going to, He's just going to have to do something different to beat Canelo, and
1: yeah, which which is the case with with everyone who faces like everyone who's faced Canelo basically has to turn in a performance at
0: a level that we've never seen before. And Canelo, and that's, Canelo that's the, that's is the case with everybody. You know, you know, there's going to be a size difference, obviously. Charlo, the taller fighter, but like everybody's the taller fighter, except for John Ryder. Everybody's the taller fighter against Canelo. Yes. he's looking up exactly at Caleb Plant. He's looking up at Sergey Kovalev. He's looking way up at Callum Smith. So, you know, looking a couple inches up at. Jamal Charlo is not going to bother, uh, bother Canelo. But, look, I, I, again, to circle back, it's it's the right fight. Like, it's a better fight than Edgar Berlanga would have been because Edgar Berlanga has done nothing to earn that fight. At least Jamal Charlo, during his career at 154, earned that opportunity, won a title legitimately at 160. So whatever he is now, he's done more to earn that fight than Edgar Berlanga and really anyone Outside of David Benavidez, who we both agree has earned done done more than anyone, darn it! But hopefully that's one of the fights in this multi-fight deal that Canelo has uh, with PBC. Last thing to take a swift turn to the other side of boxing. We are about six weeks, I want to say, away from Jake Paul against Nate Diaz, Dallas, Texas. Jake going back on the MMA circuit to take on one of the most popular guys to come out of UFC. Eddie Hearn said recently that he thought this fight wouldn't go further than four rounds, which undoubtedly will enrage the MMA community. Eddie, of course, said it on Ariel Hawani's MMA show, so he knew the audience he was directing it at. Uh, do you agree? Uh, I mean, this is the pro boxing debut for Nate Diaz. We hear all about, you know... Nate says he was going to be a boxer first before he went to MMA. You've got Andre Ward saying positive things about Nate Diaz. Uh, are you a believer that Nate Diaz can be the first former MMA fighter, or I guess current MMA fighter, to derail Jake Paul? I mean, I think that, that Eddie has a point, and I think this could very
1: well be, uh, it, it could turn out to be a mismatch. And the, all all of this fight, all this fight hinges on is to your point, the mythology that's been there about Nate throughout his MMA career, and I'm not going to profess to be a, a, a massive MMA fan, but when you're in combat sports, they're in the periphery always. But the, the the selling point for him throughout his career and that mythology has been, yeah, this guy could have been a boxer, but he, he also had these other skills, and, and so he opted to to take part in, in MMA. And I, I I always, you know, take... I press pause when I hear that because typically if you were able to be a high level boxer you probably financially would have opted to be a boxer instead generally speaking um but th- the other issue is let's say that is true let's say he was uh, having 50 50 sparring rounds with 10 with Andre Ward 10 years ago which is basically what all of this is is rooted in what is he doing now? And after all these years of not specializing in boxing, can he beat someone who has been for the last three, four years or so? You know, it's like even like this is kind of like if you, know, you took a very high level kind of Ironman competitor and you put them up against in like a one on one race against kind of, I don't know, a mid to lower level professional marathoner was specialized in just that thing this entire time. Even if that Ironman competitor had the capacity to be better or used to be better or whatever, the fact that he had to spend all of that time swimming and biking and doing all these other things took away from his ability to be great at that one single specialty. And I, I just think that, you know, gun to my head, I'm picking Jake in this fight because he's specialized in this. He's younger and he's been solely focusing on boxing this whole time. Um, you know, the the myth is either going to be debunked or or proven in this fight, which uh, is is kind of
0: fascinating to me. I think Nate's in some trouble, Corey. I think Nate's in a lot of trouble in this fight. Uh, he, he's a fun guy. And I hope, I hope during the fight week, it gets entertaining between the two. The, the kickoff press conference a couple of months ago was relatively tame. Uh, compared to expectations. I think it has the potential to get spicy during that fight week, but as I've told everybody, Jake is a boxer. Jake's not a great boxer, but Jake is a boxer. Jake has real power. Like, you don't put guys down in the way that Jake put down Ben Askren, in the way he put down Tyron Woodley, without having real knockout power. And Jake is going to be the natural... What is it? 185 catch weight, uh, something in that area. Natural guy at that weight class. Nate he's going to be coming up. He's usually a significantly lighter when he's fighting in MMA, and I don't know if he has the punch resistance, man. I don't know. I, I, I don't believe. I believe he has better boxing skills than Ben Askren did, and maybe better boxing skills than Tyron Woodley did. Though Woodley wasn't awful, especially the second time out in the ring. Uh, I, I just don't see him standing up to that right hand. I don't. I, I, this is where Eddie's going with it. Eddie knows that Jake has some real pop in that right hand. And if you walk into it, if you go in there just thinking you can take this Disney kid YouTuber and take his punches, he's going to make you pay. He's going to put yeah. you down. And look, I've spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico over the last month or so. And uh, really the last like, year, I've done a few trips down there. I've seen Jake in action. I've seen the guys he spars with. He spars with guys like Chad Dawson. He spars with guys like Jay Leon Love. Love. Takes this stuff seriously. Like he's for whatever you think of him, he's taking this stuff seriously and he's in with real guys and he's getting real training. He made the shift away from BJ Flores in his training camp for this fight, but brought in Shane Mosley who helped train him at the very beginning. So he's bringing in real guys. So I I don't know. I, I kind of side with Eddie in this one. I mean, maybe it's fun early on, but the second Jake sits down on that right hand and lands it, I don't think Nate's going to take it. I don't.
1: Yeah, I I think punch resistance is is a question for Nate, but also his own punch delivery is a question for me too because, you know, he does in MMA, and granted, there are a lot of different considerations when you're in the octagon and the way that you hold your hands and, you know, having an open palm, like, those have other benefits. You've got a lot more to worry about, but, you know, those slapping shots that, you know, we've seen Nate throw in combination inside the cage, those don't work in boxing. And, And, you know, and... Even Anderson Silva had a little bit of that. Even you know, even though he was you know a dedicated boxer to a degree as well, the way that he was throwing his punches, you know, wasn't really troubling Jake in the same way. He had some trouble I- in that fight, but really, what bugged Jake in the Tommy Fury fight was just a nice, educated jab. Yeah. Right. It, it was Tommy not jabbing nonstop and and jabbing properly, and that gave him difficulty. And you know, it, it sounds very rudimentary, but I don't know that that's part of Nate's skill set. Not to say He doesn't know how to throw a jab, but knowing how to throw a jab the way that Fury did to trouble Jake is a different caliber. And I just don't know if, if that's something that he has. Uh, there are a lot of I mean, he'll need to, to surprise me to win this fight, which is fair, and he, because he hasn't had the ability to show it. But uh, if,
0: again, if, if I'm picking someone in this fight, I'm, I'm, I'm picking Jake. Let me ask you to make another prediction. July twenty eighth, mm. we've got Crawford Spence. Biggest fight of the year in boxing. Welterweight unification fight, massive show. A week later, Paul versus Nate Diaz. Which of those two fights does more pay-per-view buys? Oh, Crawford Spence is gonna do more. Really? More than than yeah, I, I do think that. I mean, what what was what was Paul Tommy Fury? Do you remember the uh, I mean the it depends Podor on the ask? Like you know, Jake Paul will tell you it was north of eight hundred thousand buys. Um, okay, it, even if that's true, it, it came at different price points, right? Like the price point for on ESPN Plus in the U.S. was one thing; the price point across the globe was something entirely different. And it should be noted, I believe that the price point for Nate versus Jake is going to be less than Crawford versus Spence. I think they're going to do what, understandably, boxing promoters do, which is really go after the fans on. On Crawford bets, like eighty-five dollars, when you factor in yeah. kind of the type of thing you get, maybe it does, Corey. I think it's going to be closer than you think. I think it's going to be. I mean, it could, I think it's going it to be, it be close. Be a little bit of a battle. It could be a little I, bit of a battle. I think, think you. Do. I think you dramatically underestimate Nate Diaz's fan base. I think you do.
1: Which, which that that could be the case. I'm thinking of this in in terms of Jake. Which you know, after the loss, the question was like, how many of those people that were tuning in before? We're
0: just tuning in Oh, I that. don't think they would have tuned in right? for a rematch. I think he would have done considerably fewer numbers in the rematch. But the fact that he pivoted to you know, the most popular UFC guy you could make a fight with mm-hmm. uh, because of availability, I think that helps him enormously. And God bless MMA fans. You guys, some of you listen to the show, some of you tweet at me, some of you leave stuff in the comments. You are lunatics. You're all lunatics because you consistently – Regardless of past performance, you consistently believe that your guy is going to beat Jake. That this UFC guy is going to beat Jake, whether it was Ben Askren, Tyron Woodley, Anderson Silva, like you, you believe that that Jake is going to meet his match with the next UFC guy. And Nate Diaz, I, I, I'm not a, a, a expert on UFC popularity, but I'd say he's Probably more popular right now than any of the guys that I mentioned. Woodley, Silva's a legend, but I think Nate's more popular right now. Uh Ben Askren, way more popular. I, I think Nate's gonna have a lot of fans that want to watch him fight. I think this is gonna yeah. do, I think this is gonna do a big number. I do. I think it's gonna be big, big, big. And maybe Crawford Spence tops it. Probably does, but I think it's gonna be a lot closer than most people think. You know, and Crawford Spence yeah. probably benefits from being a week earlier because. You know, if you pony up 85 bucks for Crawford Spence, maybe you're a little bit less likely to pony up 60 65 for Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz. But it is going to be a different fan base. Like Jake and Nate is not going to bring in the purists like Crawford and Spence are. Uh, there'll be some crossover for sure, but it's an entirely different group of fans largely that are going to be buying Jake versus Nate. I, I think it's, I think we're going to be talking like August 12th, August 19th, whenever those numbers start to trickle out, just being really, really big. Especially if those two go at it during their fight, which I think Jake will try to do, and I think Nate will probably engage in when we get close to the fight.
1: Yeah, and listen, I I cannot be uh, judgmental towards fans of futility uh, as a fan of the Browns and Tigers. Uh, correct, and, you know, you have a lot you have of some just, of the weirdest, dreadful teams. So I understand. Like, I understand cheering for things because it'll feel good when it happens. One of these days one of these guys is going to get Jake Paul in it, And I'm sure it'll feel
0: awesome for the people that are waiting for that moment. I think it's kind of great for boxing too, because one week you get the fight we've been waiting years for, the biggest, most competitive fight you can make right now with the lower weight classes. Uh, and the next week you get the gimmicky stuff. And the gimmicky stuff is also going to have a trickle-down effect for the people on the undercard. I mean, Amanda Serrano gets another opportunity to mm-hmm. you know, fight. Uh, she's in what I think is a bit of a mismatch against Heather Hardy. Uh, who she beat? Uh, what four years ago now? Pretty convincingly, but she's going to get more exposure. I haven't seen the rest of the undercard. Who's on there? I'm sure Ashton Shil- Silva will find his way on there. Shadesha Green. I'm not sure if she's going to be on there, but that seems likely. She's part of MVP. There's there's a benefit as we've talked about a lot to having the quote unquote real boxer on these uh, Jake Paul cards. I'm looking forward to both. I am. I you know for different reasons. Like my, the boxer, the boxing purist in me is dying to see Crawford versus Spence. The curious onlooker and he wants to see Jake versus (laughs) Nako at it on uh, August 5th. Uh, Corey, good stuff, man. Always appreciate you joining me. Can't wait to come back. And when we come back, my conversation with Jared Anderson. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret.
1: Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do. Because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep. And that's why I'm grateful for
2: I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe will win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think Love he's gonna guard. He don't care about guarding. He's gonna guard. He's gonna exactly. guard. Like you see him in the exactly. Olympics, he's gonna guard. And then on I'm top not of it, like that. See that,
1: ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Casella, point game.
2: I remember mean, you came out from crying tears, I mean, he was in a culture shock, he's going to withdrawals about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OJ, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college? Because he didn't it. Ain't <laughs>
1: Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All
0: right, Jared Anderson is an undefeated heavyweight contender. On Saturday, he makes his hometown debut. First time as a professional. He will fight in Toledo, Ohio, when he takes on former heavyweight title holder Charles Martin. It is a significant step up for Jared Anderson. And a little bit surprising that we have a young fighter just now Making his debut in his hometown. So, Jared, let's start there. Uh, How is it possible that you are fighting in your hometown for the very first time on Saturday?
2: This is real easy, I guess. I didn't have a choice of where I fought. Uh, I just (laughs) followed Ty Brink's guidance um, and fought where I needed to to build my my, um, fan base.
0: How often did you get to fight in Toledo as an amateur?
2: So I, I really didn't. I was more of an amateur, I mean, a tournament fighter, so I fought most of my fights and tournaments outside of the city.
0: You know, doing this, fighting back in Toledo, was this your idea? Was it something you've wanted for a while? How, how did this come about?
2: Um, it's something I wanted for a while. I've been asking for it, and regretted me regretted my wishes.
0: Why was it important to you?
2: So that everybody from home could see me fight in person.
0: You know, in the last couple of weeks i've seen you know the good and bad of guys fighting in their hometown when i was in new orleans with regis progray you know he talked about the stresses of it he said it was a lot being back home and fighting in front of his his home fans and all that comes kind of with it as you know edgar berlanga seems to love fighting in new york city where do you stand on all this now that you're kind of in the middle or starting rather your fight week uh how do you feel about everything that comes with fighting in your hometown
2: you asking me on the very first day of fight week, so I can't tell you anything. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: don't even know yeah, I that. mean, if you got, are you getting a lot of like ticket requests though from people? Is it is it different at all than than previous fight weeks?
2: To be honest, I don't even like people, so they they don't have a good chance with <laughs> <of> that, anyways.
0: <laughs> all people. Most. <laughs> Why is that?
2: Uh, a lot of people are not true to themselves, let alone true to others. I think that's the best way to put it.
0: Can you give me an example?
2: I can give you a, a, a perfect, um, I wouldn't call it a scenario, I guess a saying. If you knew nine out of 10 people in this world will always do what's best for them, you would live your life differently.
0: Don't you assume that anyway? And that's why I live the way I live. <laughs> Don't like what I live. <laughs> I don't disagree with that viewpoint, I think most people are looking out for themselves. I think it leaves room though doesn't it to to like people still you
2: can agree to disagree, but <laughs> in
0: most situations <laughs> in most cases,
2: especially with me, it just don't work out like that um, and especially being at where where I'm at in my life, you know what I'm saying is always what can I do for them and not vice versa so
0: has has your mindset like that always been that way or is it because as you've kind of grown in boxing and grown in popularity and fame and all those things have you changed, evolved a little bit that way?
2: I I definitely say I evolved to this. I never was really like this. I was more of a people person um, as a kid but growing up realizing the um, truths of life and what really goes on in this world because a lot of people refuse to bring the, the worst out And the world and to show it even though it's actually what's happening and what's going on in the world people try not to show it and they hide it. Um, I'm not one of them people. I face facts and face reality and go with everything head on which a lot of people tend not to do.
0: There must have been a trigger though. Something must have happened the last few years that kind of shifted you this way.
2: I think it's just over time just just hearing uh, how people think. Seeing what people a lot of people in this world are non-confrontational and i'm the exact opposite like i'm going <laughs> to fight through whatever adversity or whatever obstacles that i have in front of me until they're not in front of me versus other people going around every obstacle that they can until they get to somewhere where they're like okay well i'm in the middle i'm fine with that
0: is this because of boxing related stuff or is this life related stuff
2: uh boxing is not my life <laughs> Right, Like I, once I turn these, when you guys turn these cameras off and I take my gloves off and I, everything goes like, that stops for me. So I have to continue to live my life. So this is a, I'm always living life.
0: I was more asking about sort of the the way people act. You're talking about the way people act in boxing or the way people act in day-to-day life?
2: Day-to-day life, everybody.
0: Has that changed like kind of how you go about your day-to-day life?
2: Well, I said, that's why I said what I said in the beginning. You'll live your life differently if you understood that everybody going to look out for themselves anyways.
0: But don't you think most people believe that? Like, I, I know most people I know believe that, that most people are looking out for themselves.
2: Yeah. <laughs> most, most people tend to hide their hands in that also. They they say that they understand that they know that, but they'll hide their hand when they ask you for something or when they turn around in, in the next 10 seconds also. So they can say, oh, yeah, 100% understand what you're saying, where you're coming from on that. You know what I'm saying? Everybody gonna look out for themselves, all that other stuff. But, hey, while you at it, let me see if I can get you to do this real quick. Mm-hmm. Or because they want to do something for themselves. So even in that, you know what I'm saying? To me, it's, just, it's a circle.
0: Mm-hmm. You said um, is not your life. I've heard you say things like that before. Do you like boxing? Do you love boxing?
2: I find joys in boxing. I, I find love in the brotherhood and other things of that nature. Um, boxing is a cool sport. I have been doing it for a long time. And although I have love for the sport, you can always get tired of doing something for too long or, or too excessively.
0: Are you passionate about it?
2: Yeah, without a doubt. That's why I'm here.
0: Uh, I heard you say in a recent interview, you plan to be retired by the time you're about 27. Uh why, why that number? Why Why are you putting kind of a clock on your career at this point?
2: Why do it for any longer? Uh, I've seen a lot of people be unhappy in uh, what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't want to be one of those people. So I just want to be able to live my life when I want to live my life.
0: Have you always felt that way? Or is it just the last couple of years you've decided this is when I'm going to wind down?
2: I've been saying since I was fifteen years old that I was gonna stop boxing early. So I don't think mm-hmm. this is a, a one time thought.
0: Before you get to that point, what do you wanna have what do you hope to accomplish by then?
2: To make a lot of money.
0: That's what it's all about, right? Ultimately.
2: I mean, for now, for me at least, everybody is not you know what I'm saying, everybody got any different you asked me about passions, you know. Same thing. Somebody some got different passions about stuff. My passion is through boxing and boxing alone, not through any of the titles or uh, recognition that you get from winning that stuff that people claim to think you're the best or put you a hall of Fame or any of that. Like people have passions about that. I, I personally don't. So it's all depend on your passion.
0: So it's all about making as much money as you can in the sport.
2: Right now, yeah.
0: A fight against Charles Martin, the biggest name, at least. On your resume, former title holder at heavyweight. What does he represent to you? What kind of step does he represent for you?
2: The test in front of me.
0: What kind of test are you expecting?
2: Social studies test. <laughs> a lot of history.
0: Well, looking forward to seeing you back in Toledo. First fight in your hometown. Should be a great crowd, great atmosphere, and uh, a great fight against Charles Martin, yeah. uh, former heavyweight title holder. Jared, appreciate your time, man. No
2: problem. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Corey Erdman and Jarrett Anderson for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts, and I'll see you next week.